From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Davine Joy Randolph. She plays Charisse, an aspiring artist in Hulu's High Fidelity. Davine tells me what drew her to the role. There's so many different types of people in this world, within my race, that uh, we need more diversified stories in which we can just be people as opposed to, oh, that Black character or, you know what I mean, like, oh, the Black best friend, like, when you can just be a human being. Davine also talks about training to be an opera singer before focusing on her acting career and what it was like working with Eddie Murphy in Dolomite Is My Name. Here we go. Davine, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, sweetheart. I appreciate it. How are you? I am doing all right, you know, just taking it day by day, sometimes movie by movie. <laughs> Finish one movie and be like, okay, let's have a little check-in. We're doing all right? Okay, let's put on another movie. Yeah, girl, just taking it moment by moment. How are you doing? I'm well, but maybe I should be watching more movies. What have you been watching? I'm watching a lot of old movies, a lot of old movies. So like Pillow Talk and How to Murder Your Wife uh, with Jack Lemmon and like everything basically like Turner Classic Movies. I've like escaped to that era of the 50s and 40s predominantly. And it's been good. It's been great. Have you caught up on any TV shows? Uh, You know what? I've been predominantly watching movies. It's funny, in this quarantine, that feels like another commitment. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or thing to do on the list. And I quickly get overwhelmed, you know, because then, and it's good. It's wonderful, right? Because then friends are like, okay, we're, we're committing to watch a five season series of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys, I don't know if I can do that. So movies, I meant to, I'm taking it movie by movie. That's way much more um, doable for me. But no, I haven't caught up on recent television um, lately. I don't know why. It's been interesting. That's actually quite interesting that I've been more leaning towards uh, things of the past. I wonder how many other people, you know? that. Wow, that's really interesting. Just saying that out loud. How many people are leaning to like yesteryear. I mean, I'm going all the way to like the 40s and 30s and 50s, but like foreign films too. I guess I'm just like, don't want to be here. So different time period, different location. Um, See, and I'm leaning into like friends and like Gilmore Girls, like people that I think I know just to have there in the background. No, but that's real as well as like, but it's interesting that it's still not like, I don't know, something about right now. I don't know. It just, it doesn't give me what I need, but that makes sense. Like that would, to me, would be comforting. You know what I mean? To watch like when it was like great television, not that it's not great television now, but you know what I mean? Like the golden age, if you will, of these iconic hit shows. It must be comforting on a certain level. Like you said, it's like your friends are at the house. Well, Who knows how we'll feel like six months from now. We'll probably be tired of watching anything. Um, I mean, it's a a stressful time to even be creative right now. But you recently did a Zoom play called Mama Got a Cough, 
created by Jordan E. Cooper. Talk a little bit about what that was like to sort of be creative right now and put yourself into something. No, it was wonderful. Uh, Danielle Brooks uh, hit me up and was like, yeah, I just need to like, you know, be creative in this time in some way if we can make art out of what we're going through just for, you know, people to feel seen or heard or, you know what I mean, laugh, the need to laugh um, and release. Uh, and so I was like, sure. So we did a couple of uh, table reads and um, then we uh, got him up, up on his feet. Not really. I mean, it was great because how he wrote it, it literally was, we were just being ourselves, you know what I mean? And, and being able to tap into that new reality, speaking towards that new reality, as well as like within, you know, the African-American culture and what that's like and being on different incomes and, you know, living in more urban impoverished areas, like and with the mother not feeling as though she would have a fair chance if she went to the hospital and maybe she can just fight it off. Like, um, yeah, it covered some things. I find that in this time, I feel like that's all that, not all that I have, but that my main thing that I look forward to daily um, is being creative. So uh, that was a great project as well as I've been using this time personally um, to write, coming straight off of a press tour, you know, the whole award season and then going straight into doing press for High Fidelity, I was getting ready to leave LA. I think we shut down like the 15th or 16th or something like that. And then like three days later, I was supposed to be heading on the road and I would have been out of town for the next 13 months. Um, so I <laughs> was like, oh, okay. This is different, um, but I'm very grateful that I didn't get to my destination, you know, and then be stuck in a in an unfamiliar place and then be worrying about trying to get back and all that stuff. Where were you headed? I was originally headed at that time. I was going to New Orleans and I guess it's not that unfamiliar, but I don't I know a few people there, but not a ton. You know what I mean? It's not like New York. My family lives in Philadelphia, so we don't have any family or anything like that in New Orleans. So I was just glad that I wasn't, you know, caught in route, if you will, or had to, because there's some friends of mine who with certain productions that they were doing, they had to stay um, and now are just like returning back home. That's intense. I have been using this time with doing press. Sometimes you're in the zone with that, you know, that you don't really uh, have space uh, to really even think about anything else. Um, and so I finally have the time. So I have been writing and there have been my own projects that I've been wanting to do. And it's been really good. Like, honestly, it's a huge saving grace um, to be working on it and collaborating with my writing partners um, on these individual projects. And what has been so wonderful is in this unfortunate climate, and even with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, it's almost been an affirmation of like, okay, this is very timely and this is right on topic. So that has been a really nice outlet as well as distraction. 
um, and cultivating these other worlds. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a sense of escapism or yesteryear, you know, because sometimes it's just too much, far too much to try and process. Well, I was going to ask you, like, is the time that we're living in what the last few months have been like, has it sharpened your focus on what you're writing? Has it made you lean into any particular themes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say, ironically, these are things that I already was circulating through my mind for the past, I'd say, year. And it was more so that I finally had the time to dive in. But yes, sharpen is a great way to put it. Uh, like I was working with a very close friend of mine who was like, I've always had this idea. This actually happened with a couple of friends, maybe two or three other friends, where they were like, yo, this is so cool, you know, that you're writing and that's amazing. And I I just followed my creative heart. You know what I mean? I didn't necessarily enter this industry as a writer, but it's really cool to see when you're given the time, you know what I mean? When you choose to focus, that the possibilities are available to you, you know? And so... Um, that's been a great surprise. But with a few friends, they've been like, oh, wow, it's so great that you're writing. And I'm like, yeah, in a way, I think it's like therapeutic, you know, and and I've encouraged them to do so as well. And, you know, especially as actors, sometimes if that's not our home base, we can feel inferior. Uh, but I just remind actors like your professional reader and an you know me analyst of scripts, if you will. Like that's literally your job. Like you know what's good and what's not, what feels good as an actor, you know what I mean? Like uh we, we know these things. And so I've worked with a couple of them and in regards to Sharpen, one we came up with like the moments to moments of a full entire season in a night, or came up with the moment to moment of a movie within an hour. And so that's when we kind of all were like, wait a minute, what's going on? It definitely felt like, whoa, superpowers. Do you know what I mean? Like I never in a million years would think that that was possible, but like beyond just having an idea, like 10 episodes, cranking it out in detail. So I do think like in this whole process, I've personally learned like even simple mundane tasks, like whether it's your hair or nails and stuff like that, what I noticed is that I was like, oh, wow, we personally have relied on, like, you know, in 2019 leading up to 2020, the world had so many modern conveniences and accessibility. Everyone had their things and, you know what I mean, wants and desires. And we'd go to the nail salon and get pedicures you know, weekly or every two weeks and we're getting our hair done and we had all our things and ballet and all these conveniences. And then it brought it back really basic, you know, and we're getting our lashes done and eyebrows thread and stuff like that, where you're like, in this quarantine, I've come to understand like, oh, wow, if I really focus, I can do all these things myself. And it's very important. I'm not saying like, you know, run these people out of business, but it was an interesting experience for me to observe, oh, I'm capable of these things. We grow, I don't know how to say it, like... Dependent. Yes, exactly. And it's like, listen, I can't wait when every, when I'll say when I personally feel safe, but I definitely 
look forward to when the time comes to for sure get those things done when the time is right. But just in this time, it's been quite refreshing to know like, oh yeah, if you have a time, you're capable. I guess in a way, like, I guess it sounds a little bit petty, but self-care is very important. But also just as overall as human beings, I hope more people are able to tap into the awareness that they are for the most part, probably not living to half of their potential. And that when you're given the opportunity and blessing, I think, to slow down and be given all the time in the world, we should take good use of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think for me, when it really shook me is when I was like, oh, wait a minute. The entire world is dealing with this. That's when I was like, oh, no. This is on a deeper level, obviously, for like health and medical reasons, but also like on a personal, spiritual, if you will, level, like there's a reason why the world is, for whatever reason, slowing down. Do you know what I mean? Or why we're like on timeout, if you will. If you use the the idea of being on timeout, that visual, like it's like, let us learn what we're supposed to learn, let's grow and rebuild in this time of being on timeout so that when we come out of this, we would have learned whatever it is. And I think everyone's journey is specific, you know what I mean? And like in this time, people are having to confront things within themselves, within their family units, within their relationships, you know? And it's, it's tough and it's hard but we're being confronted with it. And I don't think that that is happenstance. So it's been really interesting just to see and be shown parts of my potential. You know what I mean? And, and, and what we are capable of and trying to empathetically encourage friends and family of like, well, what, it, what can you tap into? You know what I mean? That feels good and authentic. I'm not going to try to sit here and pressure anybody. Like I said, it's movie by movie. So you might have a good moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to do something. And then I'll be like, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm not. This episode is brought to you by Bad Education on HBO. The new HBO film, Bad Education, stars Academy Award nominee Hugh Jackman and Academy Award winner Allison Janney as Long Island School District supervisors that find themselves at the center of a major scandal. Inspired by true events, the movie follows Hugh Jackman's Frank Tassone, a passionate but greedy superintendent whose hard work and loyalty from his assistant superintendent, Pam Glucken, played by Allison Janney, earns their school's national recognition. When a student reporter tracks a paper trail, an embezzlement scheme unfolds, and Frank, who prizes his power and the illusion of his success, will stop at nothing to protect his school district status. IndieWire calls the film masterful and a diabolically smart crime story. Bad Education is Emmy-eligible for Outstanding Television Movie and all other categories.
with the conversations that are happening right now around racial injustice and with the various industries, including Hollywood, being called to address their role in systemic inequality, do you feel a greater sense of determination in the work that you're doing? Mm, this is interesting. I had this conversation with, I'll say, an actual writer friend of mine um, that is a Black woman. And what is interesting is, like, it's never changed for us. Does that make sense? Like, No, it does. It will change for others. I've always been this way. I've always taken great pride and respect because I know what it means. I've lived this. I am this. It was funny. I was on, I was about to, I was opening up my computer and the Google homepage came up and it was like, I don't know what year it was, but it was like celebrating the 155th Juneteenth. And I was like, the 155th? Like, this is the first year we kind of, sort of, are acknowledging it, really, as like, a a nation. So for me, it's kind of like, no, and that's the thing. My projects and my pieces are always going to be through the lens of an authentic African-American female voice, or I'll say a POC voice, depending on what the subject matter is. So it's never not going to be that. So it didn't, it hasn't really changed. I think the market might change. Like I think there may be now execs that are more aware of the need to do it. But also like, I think it's that murky area, right? It's like why affirmative action or quotas can be very tricky. First and foremost, I need and strive for quality. That's why I got the education that I got because I didn't want to just be like a girl who acts or whatever. Like I want, no matter what I play, whether I play an inmate, whether I play a trash collector, whether I play the queen of Nairobi, like it doesn't matter. The same sophistication and integrity that I would put towards a queen is the same that I'm going to put into someone who collects your trash. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have always made the the conscious decision, even if my characters have played, quote-unquote, degradating roles or had a certain low income or whatever, I always made the choice of, she is the best secretary that you've ever met. She is on it. I always set my character up to win, even within the given circumstances. You know, I'm never interested in showing less than that. And, and, and that way, it allows for people to see themselves who have those jobs. You know what I mean? Even if they're lower jobs, to still take a level of pride. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, in everything that I do, I do it with a level of pride and education and respect. Because that's how I was raised. And that's how, the, especially the women... And my family did, whether they were bankers, you know what I mean, kindergarten teachers, had their own maid cleaning service. Like, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's still, and I think that's a bit how we are as a people, that as long as you're bringing in consistent money, that's a success. That's a win. So I don't know necessarily if, I, I don't think, it may, but I don't think 
it will change anything for me. Like I said before, it's more of an affirmation that I'm like, okay, cool. There's something that I was thinking about a year ago is spot on with the times. We'll see how they digest it. They being the industry, you know what I mean? They being the execs, uh, the studios that sign off for these projects. But at the end of the day, I have a level of confidence. Like, you know your people, you know who you are and where, and when you know who you are and where you come from, it's a polite offer. You know what I mean? Like, I would like to do this with you. If you're on board, cool. If you're not, then okay, go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Because it's kind of like, I'm used to being told no and, and rejection. So that's why it's kind of like, I, I take great pride and I'm extremely humble with every single job that I get. I've said in interviews before, you know, a huge part of that is that in many ways, I'm not even supposed to be here in regards to, I had a whole nother trajectory for my life um, with being a classical opera singer. And that's what I thought I was gonna do, but it's like, I'm here and everything has a reason and a purpose. And I also believe that we all have the ability in whatever we do to be a contribution to ourselves and others and our community as a whole. So for me, my job is to illuminate the human experience and reveal truth and authenticity so that people can see themselves. Art is therapy. It really is. So it's like sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I know I have. It's like you could be watching a TV show or a movie or see a play or whatever form, you know what I mean? See a ballet. And there's something that strikes a chord in you. Sometimes it can literally be through a script, you know what I mean? Through text that one character says to another. And sometimes it can be a painting or, you know what I mean? A ballet, something that doesn't have a dialogue with it. And it can strike a chord in you and it can bring up things, you know what I mean? From your past or it can be healing in ways that sometimes we may not have been confident or, you know, to approach prior, but through art, I don't want to say a buffer, but maybe a comfort is given where, and a sometimes different and more effective way, we're able to emote and release and express. And that's very important to me. And that's the level in which I am more keyed in and interested in the telling of these stories. So it's very important for me to have it be authentic. So for example, with someone like, you know, Lady Reed, who didn't, there was nothing on there for me to search, you know, like Google her or anything. And that's tragic. Cause that was a main figure in that man's Rudy Ray Moore's entire franchise. She was in every movie basically. And yet there's nothing on her. So that kind of, even more so got me on a quest. And so then when, you know, Sharice Baha'i Fideli came along and Zoe and I had several conversations, the biggest reason why I was on board is that I quickly came to understand that she also understood the importance of this, that she understood that we have to tell authentic stories and that I personally like to change it up and I don't, I don't want to play. There's so many different types of people in this world within my race 
that uh, we need more diversified stories in which we can just be people as opposed to, oh, that Black character or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, the Black best friend. Like, when you can just be a human being. And I think one of the easier ways to get there is through having the opportunity to see more of it. And so why High Fidelity was so powerful, in my point of view, is because you had two women. So first of all, you were, the network was, I'll say for the lack of a better word, better word, brave enough to cast two women that was originally two white men to then cast two women of color, two black women, and to be able to see a lens in which it isn't just the stereotype of what you are accustomed of seeing in black women and that you can see they are eclectic. My character, who may tend to be a bit more, if you will, hip hop, what I loved is that she's talking about rock bands. She's talking about Blondie. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, she's eclectic. And, and that's real because not all people of color only subscribe to their music. And what was nice, it was that it was like, oh, this feels real. It was really great to have that opportunity to play a character who is authentic. And on top of that, a woman who is unapologetic and says what she feels. And yet there is a very clear distinction um, from and that she does not represent quote unquote, the angry, sassy black girl. Do you know what I mean? Like it, that's, that was huge to me that I was like, this woman, it, because it's like when Jack Black did it, you're not thinking he's an angry, raging white guy. You're just like, oh, this is like a quirky free spirit that has no filter. And he feels comfortable around his friends to say how he feels in the moment when he feels it. Well, I think I think even the way um, we first meet your character sort of speaks to that. I mean, she bursts into the record store for another day of work and she's blasting Come On Eileen, which for the record is one of my all time favorite songs. I jam to that so hard while I sweep. Um, but um, but she's talking about this dream that she's having. And it, it might be like my favorite character entrance ever. Talk about like what that scene alone told you about who she was. Yeah, and I'll let you in on something. Interestingly enough, when we first shot the pilot, we reshot most of it after we finished wrapped, or not wrapped, but when we finished episode 10, it was kind of already talks about it, but it was kind of like, oh, this this show has now, through us doing it, we understand the tone and the world of it even more clearly. And so we reshot quite a few scenes and that was one of them. And interestingly enough, when we did the pilot, it was Genuine's Pony. Exactly. And that's a whole, and then I was originally, the music was playing and I'm like, look, and I'm talking about Magic Mike and how Channing Tatum can get it. And I'm like, grinding up against Simon and like low-key like stripper dancing. Not, but you know what I mean? Like dancing to the music as 
a black urban woman, you know what I mean, who really digs that song, might. And um, I was kind of like, okay, I mean, I can't, you know what I mean? And then Zoe and I had a conversation and she was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm really digging that. And I was like, okay, let's play with it. Like, I'm down. Let's see what it can be. So the show is very blessed to have Zoe as an EP in which you have an awareness. You have the culture. You have the authenticity. And as me of someone who born and raised in Philadelphia, I went to private schools and I was a quota and I would get bused to the suburbs of Philadelphia because education was very important to my parents. I naturally became exposed to other things. I grew up with a much more diversified, wider, eclectic view of life, which I'm very grateful to my parents for having. In no way do I lose sight of myself. If anything, I think it gave me more of a love and appreciation of my own culture um, and a responsibility to them of bringing what I learned to them. I think one reason why High Fidelity is a big deal is because I don't think we've ever seen women of color, specifically African-American women, portrayed in this way. Well, do you think that's something, because we, one of the things about this season is Sharice didn't get an episode from her perspective the way Simon did. And I know that producer Veronica West has sort of promised that when the show comes back, that, that she does hope to give Sharice a spotlight episode. So would you want to explore some of that? For sure. The biggest thing was, okay, are we going to establish her as like, you know, a singer who's up and coming and, you know, hustling to like kind of how you see the the two girls, the two younger girls, but like much more expanded. You know what I mean? That she's going to band practice and this and that. I had been told that my, the finale was going to be like, Originally, it was going to be that Sharice and the girls were going to link up and they were going to end up forming a band in which Sharice was going to be the lead singer. The finale was going to be, you know, Rob doesn't believe her and it's like, you're not doing anything, please. And then she uh, finally comes to her performance and it's like amazing. Right. And it's like a star is born. She's arrived. And then the, it was a good argument because it was like, okay, so now what, though? I know one concern was that it could stunt her trajectory. I, so I personally feel as though how they did that ending, I was very pleased with. Um, but I personally would love in season two if we dove into Sharice's world a bit more outside of just the record store and outside of, you know, Rob's dating dilemmas. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next for Sharice. Before we wrap up, though, I have one final question for you. It comes from our previous guest, James Corden, the host of The Late Late Show on CBS. Well, I would like to say, Devine, that I think she was so brilliant in Dolomite Is My Name. My question would be, I don't know if I would be able to keep my cool around Eddie Murphy. Was this a thing for her? And did she have to take any deep breaths? Or was it just kind of cool and great from the off? Um, very good question. 
To be honest, I had always been a major fan of him as well, especially with uh, Nutty Professor. That whole era was when I was really like, yo, this man is everything, playing all these different characters and nailing them. Due to my audition experience and process, I auditioned several times, many callbacks, and though I actually never auditioned with him, and my first time meeting him was our first day on set, I, in the audition process and getting notes from him and the execs, I began to quickly understand and see the world in which they were wanting to play with for this show Dolomite and how they wanted this character to be depicted. So in regards to acting, I felt very clear and comfortable with knowing where they wanted to go. So I had confidence in approaching this role and the blessing in doing all these callbacks. I had more and more opportunities. To me, they felt more like work sessions that I was able to really nail down and pinpoint where they wanted to go. And, you know, being that he loves to transform into his characters, that was um, by default then applied on me as well and wanting to have me, you know, do a dialect and get into full costume and, you know, mimic her gestures and laugh and stuff like that. So that a time it was time to go, I was good to go. Um, and when I first met him, he was very kind um, and reassuring and he called me his Lady Reed. So I felt cool and like, okay, <laughs> he feels good about this choice. He's He's cool with the me being cast as this newbie, as opposed to if it were to have been a more established actress or perhaps even once, perhaps even someone that he worked with in the past. So I think once that immediately got cleared up for me before we even started shooting on that first day, then I was able to relax and just enjoy him. And I think he appreciated that, that I didn't was like, oh my God, do you know who you are? (laughs) And said I just treated him like, you know, a regular guy who cares about what he's doing and really put his heart into it. So, yeah. I'm sure Eddie definitely appreciated that. Well, Devine, what would you like to ask our next guest, the legendary actor, Michael Douglas? My question is, due to the climate, a movie like Falling Down is very topical even now. When you did Falling Down, did you know the impact this movie would have? What was that experience like filming and creating that iconic character? That's a great question. I will definitely ask him. Davine, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Stay safe and healthy. All right, take care. That's it for the 29th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking with Michael Douglas. It's one of the aspects that I enjoy about playing a character uh, that's my age. We know the prostate issue is one thing. Cancer, of course, is uh, uh, is a little serious and um, I admire Chuck Lorre so much as he racks his brains to find some humor out of all of this. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one 
and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.